My wife and I thank you for your prayers last week. As you know, we were not here. We were celebrating our, our 20th anniversary, and so we did. We went to Hawaii, and uh, we had a good time, so thank you for those who have asked us. Uh, I think everyone has said we don't look very tan. Uh, it's because we're from the Northwest, and we don't know what to do when the sun comes out. Uh, so we're going to go back and try harder next time. So that's the only solution that we can figure out. Uh, so we're in chapter 5 of Galatians. Many of you know that we have been in a series in the book of Galatians, and in this book, Paul is defending the doctrine of justification by faith. He is adamant that he wants you, that he wants I, he wants us all to know that we are saved, that we are justified by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. He wants you and I to know there's nothing that we do to earn or achieve our salvation. It's a free gift by, by God. And so today we're in chapter 5, and, and as we move into chapter 5, we're moving into a new section of Galatians. You can kind of divide up the book of Galatians into three sections. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, Paul defends his apostleship. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul defends and argues for justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And now in chapters 5 and 6, he wants us to know, so what does it look like to live out the gospel? What does it mean that we're saved, and how do we live out these theological truths that he's been talking about over the last few chapters? And so being that that's the question that he's going to begin answering, I think I will ask you the question, uh, how would you answer if someone said, how is your faith in Christ revealed each day? How does the gospel affect the way that you work? the way that you parent, the way that you interact with your spouse? How does the gospel affect when you get cut off when driving along the road? How does the gospel affect your actions, your thoughts, your desires? How does the gospel affect the way you see the world? The short answer and the main point this morning is that as Christians, we have been freed by the gospel to live and love like Christ. So that's what we're going to see. We've been freed to live and love like Christ. So everything about the Christian life is to look like Christ. And that's what we're going to see today. Now this morning, we are going to read and preach through the entire fifth chapter of Galatians. We normally don't preach through such a large section. The advantage of this big wide-angle view is we get to see all of Paul's argument. The disadvantage, of course, is we don't get to unpack all the little intricacies of it. And so there's advantages and disadvantages doing both ways. Um, but we're going to go ahead and read chapter 5, all of it, and I want to invite you to stand with me. We stand here at the reading of God's Word as a means of reminding ourselves this is God's Word, comes with His full authority for the purpose of equipping us that we would know God and that we would live like him. Here we go, chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who 
hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not enter the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you for letting us be here today. We praise you for the salvation that you have freely given us in your son, Jesus Christ. As we study your word this morning, give us wisdom. Help us to see the freedom we have in Christ. Help us to taste it. Help us to love it. Help us to know it. Help us to enjoy it. God, may we know that we are alive in Christ and free from sin. May every single believer here know that the Spirit of God is in them and they can live and love like your son, Jesus. Father, help us as a church to understand these truths that our fellowship with one another would be sweeter and sweeter. May we truly be known by our love. May our love for one another be tangibly felt in this room and may it overflow into every aspect and every relationship we have. We praise you for the gospel. Bless the preaching of the word this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. So we're going to begin by, by just looking at the command that stands at the very beginning of our passage. And the command is that we stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. That's what we see in verse 1. Verse 1 is like a hinge verse. It concludes the argument in chapters 3 and 4. And it begins the argument in chapters 5 and 6. And so what Paul wants us to know is that we are to stand, for, he wants us to know that for freedom, Christ has set us free. He says, stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What he wants us to know is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is about freedom. At the cross, Jesus sets us free from sin. 
Now, if you're new here, if you haven't been with us as we've been preaching through the book of Galatians, this is your first week, you might be going, okay, free from what? What were we slaves to? What do we need to be freed from? The Bible teaches us from cover to cover, and Paul in the book of Galatians says that every single person born in this world, except for Jesus Christ, is born as a slave to sin. And to be a slave to sin means everything we do is sinful. We live in God's world, but we do not glorify him, honor him, or please him. As parents, there's times that you feel like your children are bent on disobeying everything that you want to do in your house. And what we understand in God's word is that's just not sometimes we disobey him, but when we are slaves to him, before slaves to sin, before salvation, everything we do is disobedient to God. We live for our glory, we live for our pleasure, we live for our honor. In fact, in Romans 6, another letter that Paul writes, he writes a lot about slavery to sin, and this is what he says. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For, in, for the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin, you become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Notice there in verse 20, he says, we were, when we were slaves to sin, we're free with regards to righteousness. Meaning, there's nothing we can do that's righteous. We do not live righteous lives. We did not and could not live in a way that would glorify or honor God. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 53, there is no one who does good, not even one. And then in verse 21, Paul says, the consequence of being a slave to sin, being free from righteousness, is death and judgment. And Paul's point through the letter of Galatians is to show that we cannot become righteous by our works, by our effort, by our power. There's nothing that we can do when we are slaves to sin to please God. To trust in our works is like a hamster on one of those wheels that keeps spinning around and around. He goes nowhere and accomplishes nothing. This is the whole point of the gospel. In fact, Jake, last week, he preaches in, in Galatians 4, and he did an amazing job showing that Jesus Christ... He comes, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he would meet the perfect righteous requirement of the law. He did what we could not do, so that when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we have faith in Christ, we're given the righteousness of Christ. So what we cannot achieve on our own, Christ does for us, and when we believe in him, he gives us his righteousness, and then we are told, because we've now been clothed with his righteousness, we're adopted into the family of God. The whole gospel is about taking those who are slaves to sin and making us sons of God. That's the beauty of it. Adoption is what Jake preached on last week. We go from slaves to sin to sons of God. If you have trusted in Christ, if you know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and that you have been given his righteousness, then know that you are a child of God. And you are clothed with the spotless, unblemished, glorious, perfect righteousness of Christ. And there's nothing you can do to change that. You are freed from sin. You are freed from trusting in yourself. You are freed from trying to earn your salvation, from trying to do enough good to achieve your salvation. We're free 
and we're sons and daughters of God, adopted into his family. We have been set free. And so the gospel is ultimately about taking slaves and making them free so that we get to live for God. So in the rest of the sermon, we're going to say, so what does that look like now? If we've gone from slavery and we're now free in Christ, how do we live a free life in Christ? So what we're going to do is answer those questions that we asked in the beginning. How does the truth of the gospel affect the way we live, affect the way we interact with one another? There's at least two things that Paul wants us to see. He wants us to know that we defend our freedom and that we enjoy our freedom. And so we'll take them one at a time. We'll start with we defend our freedom. If you look at verse 1, Paul says, We are to stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, now the word stand firm, it's, it's a military term, and he's saying stand firm, resist the enemy, do not fall down. He's calling us to be on guard. But why? Why do we need to be on guard against something? What are we to be on guard against? We're free now, right? What do we have to be on guard against? What Paul wants us to know is that our slave master wants us to come back under slavery, and he's doing everything he can to pull us back, to put the yoke of slavery back on us. And so there's at least two battlefields that every Christian is engaged in. This is where we defend our freedom. So we'll look at these battlefields one at a time. Number one, the battlefield is false teaching. This is the whole point of the letter of Galatians. In fact, every New Testament letter warns against false teaching. False teachers have come to the church of Galatia, and this is their message. Trust in Christ and trust the law. They don't necessarily deny Christ. They don't, but they do deny the sufficiency of Christ. They say, it's great for you to believe in him. He just didn't do enough for you. He wasn't good enough, strong enough, and righteous enough. So believe in Christ by all means. This is what makes false gospels so deceptive is when they say, believe in Christ. We have no problem with that. However, just know that he wasn't enough. So now you need to follow the law. You need to do these things. You need to do X, Y, and Z in order to finalize your salvation in order to truly achieve your salvation. And so here in Galatia, these false teachers have come and they say, yes, believe in Christ by all means. He's great. He got you started on the right path. Now what you need to do is you need to follow the Old Testament law. And particularly, it seems that circumcision was becoming a major point of contention. Now in the Old Testament, circumcision was the outward physical sign that you belong to the people of God, that you were an Israelite. So the argument goes, these teachers have come, and they're looking at a primarily Gentile church. They're saying, you guys are doing great. We're really happy with where you're at. But if you're going to truly be saved, you're going to have to be circumcised and follow the Old Testament law. So listen to what Paul says. This is is where his argument begins. Verse 2. If you practice circumcision, Christ is of no value to you. Meaning, if you practice circumcision as a means of achieving, of earning, of obtaining your salvation, if you think your works will merit your salvation, Christ is of no value to you. Verse 3, he says, if you want to trust in circumcision 
then you have to keep the whole law. That's the argument Paul has made throughout the letter. That's what we see in other parts of the New Testament. You either choose works or you have grace. And if you're going to go by works, then you must keep every aspect of the law perfectly at all times. You don't get to pick and choose. Well, I think I'll take some circumcision. I'll take this part and I'll take this part and I'll ignore the rest. No, Paul says you, you want to go by works, keep it all at all times perfectly. Verse 4, again, Paul emphasizes, he says, you can't have it both ways. If you think you can be justified by the law, you're severed from Christ. No value to you at all. Now, he's not saying you can lose your salvation, which is an argument that many times we, we wrestle with. But what he's saying is if, if you're going to trust in yourself, in your works, in your power, in your effort as a means to be saved, then you're proving that you do not know who Christ is. You're severed from Christ. Verses 7 and 8, Paul makes it clear. He says, this persuasion, this teaching, which sounds so influential, which sounds so sweet, which sounds right, he says, it's not from him who calls you. Paul wants the church to know that these people who have come in and are arguing for this works-based salvation, they are not arguing about the true gospel. They are not talking about what Christ has done for you. It is a false gospel, and it is not of Christ. Now, I don't think that there's anyone here who's tempted to be circumcised as a means of our salvation. And I haven't heard today Anyone boasting of their circumcision in here saying, I am saved because I am circumcised. Some of you are going, this is gross. This is weird. I don't even know why we're talking about this anymore. <laughs> it's biblical. This is exact. Could you imagine? This is the first century conversation. Now, it might be a little different today. While we might not necessarily be talking about circumcision, what we need to know is that we are constantly bombarded with false teaching that says your worth is determined by what you do. In fact, all social media, the internet, advertising, movies, billboards, the radio, they're like a giant megaphone in this world telling you your worth comes from what you do rather than in Christ. Everything in this world is trying to lure you away from trusting in Christ and trusting into a false gospel, trusting in yourself, trusting in something else. Now, my my extended family, my, my family lives in, in California in the northern part. It's, um, we, we try to go visit them once or twice a year when we're able to. Um, it feels like a different culture when we go there. Everything from storefronts to landscaping to big houses to fancy cars to the people in their, in their perfect clothing, it screams success. And, and the message is loud and clear when you're down there. If you look like this and, and you have this, then you are a good and successful person. And I'll admit, every time I go there, I can tangibly feel, hear, and see that temptation. Every time we go there. Everything in this world is telling you and I to trust in something other than Christ. You don't have to go to California. It can be here in Lacey. It can be every part of this world. My wife and I were in Hawaii. doesn't matter where you are. The world is calling you to trust in anything other than Christ. And so 
we need to know false teaching does not just exist within the church. It can, and it does, we see, but it can exist outside the church. And Paul's saying, we need to be on guard. And unfortunately, I don't think we, and I talk we as in this church and the church, I don't think we actually heed enough what the New Testament writers say regarding false teaching. If we did, I don't think we would spend so much time on social media or so much money on Amazon. If we truly understood the warnings and the dangers of false teaching. Listen to what Paul says, verse 9. This is, this is a massive warning here. We really need to get this. It says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Small amount of leaven will cause the entire batch of dough to rise. Small amounts of false teaching result in putting the yoke of slavery back on. We are extremely arrogant if we think we are immune to false teaching. We are very arrogant if we think we can spend countless hours on social media and doing all that the world says, and it has zero effect upon us. Paul's warning is little leaven was a really long way. So he says, be on guard. Be on guard against false gospels. So that's battlefront number one. Battlefront number one is, is out there. Battlefront number two is now going to be in our hearts. And we're going to see that. We're going to call it battlefield number two is indwelling sin. We see this in verses 16 to 18. This is where Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice what he says. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other. So there's a war going on to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you ever feel like you don't do what you want to do? You ever feel like you're, you're not living the righteous life? I want to live righteously, but somehow I'm not living righteously at times. Paul says there's a war, war of works of the flesh and the spirit. They're opposed to one another. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now you might say, okay, I, I thought you said when we were saved, we're freed from sin. We're freed from sin, so if I'm no longer a slave to sin, why do I need to worry about sinful desires within my heart? I'm free. They have no effect on me, right? So we can answer that in many ways. I'll, I'll do it this way. When Christ came, he ushered in the kingdom of God. You remember at the beginning of the Gospels, it says he, he preaches and he says, the gospel of the kingdom is at hand. I mean, the gospel of the kingdom is here. And today, we know that the church is not the kingdom, but it represents the kingdom. The church reveals the presence of God, the rule of God, and the blessing of God in this world. But when we look at the world, we clearly see that the church is rejected, persecuted, mocked, and belittled. So the world does not see the kingdom of God. The world does not honor the kingdom of God. While the church is representing it, showing that the kingdom of God is here, the world says, yeah, I don't see that. And, and I, don't, I don't care about it. But what we're told is that when Christ comes again, he'll bring forth the fullness of the kingdom. And at that time, we're told his glory will fill this earth as the waters cover the sea. And in Revelation chapter 6, we're told that unbelievers would rather have rocks thrown upon them, crushing them, than face the judgment and the rule of God when he brings forth his kingdom in fullness. 
So we're given these pictures. The kingdom is at here, and yet it's when he returns again. The fullness will come, and the entire world will experience and feel and see the fullness of the kingdom. And so just as the kingdom of God is here, but not in absolute fullness. So as Christians, we are freed from the power of sin. But until Christ comes again, we still will experience the presence of sin within our hearts. Does that make sense? We're moving towards the absolute fullness of our salvation. We will be glorified with Christ and in Christ, and we will never, ever sin again in the new heavens and the new earth. But between now and then, we're going to wrestle with, yes, we're freed from sin, no longer under the power, but we still experience the presence of sin. Verses 19 through 21, Paul gives us a list of these sins. It's not exhaustive. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So we know it's not exhaustive. Things like these. And then he says, I warn you as he warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If these are the things that characterize you as slaves to sin, you will not enter the kingdom of God. These works of the flesh are a description of the temptation that every single believer faces. We're tempted to lust. We're tempted to manipulate. We're tempted to worship and honor things or people more than Christ. We're jealous when others get things that that we want, that we think we deserve. We're tempted to be angry when others do not meet our expectations. And there's some people who will say, you know, I I don't think as Christians we still have indwelling sin. I want you to just think about this. Think about how, how relevant this is to even here on a Sunday morning when we gather. How often do you get distracted with worldly, trivial things when you are praying or when someone else is praying? Has that ever happened to you? Someone's praying to the infinite, almighty, all-powerful God, and we're thinking about lunch. We're like, I, I think there's something more important I want to think about. Or how often... When we're gathering, we're singing praises to God, exalting his name, glorifying him. And today, I mean, it always does, but today there's, there's a sweetness that was about as we were singing praises as the team was up here. And, and we're singing songs and like It Is Well With My Soul or songs like Amazing Grace, How Great Thou Art. And we're sitting there going, I wonder what I need to do when I get home today. We're distracted. This is, what, this is what the Puritan John Owen said. He said, the heart is not habitually inclined unto evil by the remainders of indwelling sin. But this sin in the heart has a constant habitual propensity unto evil in itself or its own nature. So while we are not always only sinning, we do always in this life have the propensity to sin at any time. You understand that? We're freed from the power of sin. We do not necessarily sin at all times, and yet we have the propensity to sin at all times because there are these temptations at war within us to keep us from doing the very things that we want to do. So Paul's point here, he's like, there's, there's a battle out there 
There's false teaching. And he says, there's a battle in here. And we must be on guard about what we hear, about what we see, what we listen to, how we think, and how we feel. Mark Jones, he wrote a book on sin, and he said this. When we are tempted, we fight not simply the outward temptation, but the inward recesses of our heart that see the temptation with eyes of delight. So how do you know? How do you know if you're being tempted to put the yoke of slavery back on? How do you know if you're beginning to live as if works are what determines your worth? How do you know if the desires of the flesh are beginning to dominate how you think and how you feel and how you act? Look at verse 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. If you skim down to to verse 26, he says, let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The evidence that we're beginning to act as slaves of sin is that we bite and devour one another. We're full of conceit, envy, and anger. We see people as obstacles that are in our way of getting the things that we want. Or we see people as a means to obtain what we want and we will use them for those means. And once they expire, once they no longer are useful, we will be done with them. Many of you might remember the, uh, the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The, the young son comes up to his father and says, give me my inheritance, which is in essence saying, I wish you were dead. I just want what, I, what I'm supposed to get now. And, and he takes it and he goes and he squanders it all. He just lives absolutely recklessly. It's this beautiful story of grace in when he comes back and the father sees him from afar and he runs out to them and, and he hugs him and he embraces him and he covers him with his coat and he says, come into the house. We're going we're gonna to sacrifice the fattened calf. We're going to bring you in. He treats him as a son. This is a picture of grace. This is what the father does to us when we come to him in salvation and we believe in him. He forgives us, covers us with grace and brings us into his house as sons But do you remember the elder brother and how he responded? He's full of anger. He's full of bitterness. He had absolutely no love for his brother. After all, he had done absolutely nothing wrong. He had stayed home. He had worked hard. He had been faithful. No party had been given to him. No no fattened calf had been sacrificed for his honor. He was not about to go in and celebrate with his brother. Hear this. The evidence that we are turning back to the yoke of slavery is found in our relationships. Look at how you love one another. Look at how you love your wife, your husband, your children, your coworkers, the thoughts and the desires that are within you. Are you full of love and inclined to give grace? Are you full of anger and bitterness and conceit? These are the sure signs that you're living as a slave to sin. And if that's you today, I want to encourage you, confess your sin. If you realize when you're looking at yourself, man, I have anger has been building up. Bitterness has beginning to go. It's like there was a small spark and it has begun to turn into a roaring fire. Confess your sins today. Believe in Christ and there is forgiveness. Whether this is the first time you become a child of God today or you realize you have been inconsistent and functionally you have been living as a slave to sin, confess your sins to Christ today. Remember that you are saved by grace, that you are freed from sin, and that you have the Spirit of God in you and receive his forgiveness.
So that's number one. We're called to defend our freedom. Number two, we're called to enjoy our freedom. And I want us to see what, what Paul is, is talking about here. Now remember, before we're saved, he says we're slaves to sin. All we do is rebellion to God. But then we come to verse 16. And he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The word walk refers to, to how we live. And the Spirit, of course, is the third person of the Trinity. Now Paul has mentioned the Spirit multiple times in the book of Galatians. In chapters 3, and two, uh, chapters three, verses 2 and 3, we see the Spirit is given to every single believer when you believe in Christ. You confess Jesus as Lord, you're given the Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 6, Jake preached the Spirit of God is given to every child of God. And, and Jake also showed in Ephesians last week that the Spirit is the sign and seal of every single believer. How do you know you're saved? You begin the Spirit. How do you know you will continue to be saved? Because you have the Spirit of Christ in you. In chapter 5, verse 5, we see that it's by the power of the Spirit we wait for the return of Christ, who is our righteousness. Paul's point is we now have the infinite, eternal all-powerful spirit of God living within us so that we can live a righteous life that honors and glorifies God. You've been set free from sin in a state that you could not please God. You could not honor him. You could not glorify him. And now you have the spirit in you that you would live and you would honor God, that you enjoy his presence and his blessing and his rule in your life. And Paul says what the spirit does within us in chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You've been given the spirit of Christ so you would live like Christ, that you would love like Christ, that you would love others as he has loved you. This is why back in verse 6, Paul says, circumcision doesn't matter. The evidence of our faith is what? We love one another. This is why then in verse 13 he says, you've been freed from sin that you would love others by serving them. You've been saved, adopted into God's family, freed from sin, given the Spirit of God, that your life would now be characterized by love. Do you know that? You have everything you need to love your spouse, to love your children, to love your coworkers. To love those who are difficult, love those who slander you, love those who malign you. You have the Spirit of God in you, strengthening you, that you'd be patient. You have the Spirit of God in you so that when someone cuts you off when driving, you can practice self-control and be kind. Men, you have the Spirit of God in you that you'd be gentle and kind with your wife and your children. Wives, you have the Spirit of God in you that when your day is crazy and your kids are determined and bent on breaking every rule and disobeying everything and just bringing the house into total chaos, that you would display self-control, joy, and peace. In chapter 6, Paul, Paul helps us understand how the Spirit affects us as a church. Get this. He says in chapter 6, verse 2, we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is that we love one another. Chapter 6, verse 10 is one of my favorite verses when it talks about how we interact with one another. It says, we are to do good to everyone, especially the household of faith. What that means is that when we gather, like, like today, this morning, the church is a harvest of righteousness. 
Like righteousness ought to just be, be displayed in every word and everything that we do with one another as we interact with one another. We gather early to encourage one another, to build each other up. We, we come and we move across the aisles when it's the greeting time. Why? Because we love one another. Because we have the Spirit of Christ in us that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would especially say, how do I love the people in this room? We stay late so we get to, to meet new people. We get to honor them. We get to set up times outside of the, the normal gathering time to love people, to honor them, to encourage them, to get to know them, to serve them. Church is a harvest of righteousness. Gathering with the church is one of the greatest activities we can do as a church every week. Do you know that? There's nothing that rivals this gathering right here. We're surrounded by spirit-filled people who desire to love, care, and build and honor up one another. That's what we're here to do. Yes, we honor God in all of that. And the way we do that is by caring for one another, building each other up. We're not easily offended we're patient, we're full of self-control because the Spirit is in us. Our first inclination is one of love and grace and kindness and patience with one another, not anger, bitterness, and jealousy. Because of the infinite, all-powerful God that lives within us, there is no situation that you will ever be in that you cannot display the fruit of the Spirit. Do you know that? Like you, you can all shake your head, yes, I know that, but functionally, do you get that? Like, just think about this last week. Did you live that truth? Were there times that you're short with your spouse, your children? Did anger, did bitterness, did jealousy flash across your minds at times? And yet what we're told is we're free. We're free from sin. Those things have no controlling power over us. We now have the spirit in us that we can respond in love and grace and kindness towards one another. Never, never, never can we say, I cannot love that person. That person has done too much. Right, the spirit lives in you and I, so his infinite love and grace would be at work in you, and you cannot exhaust the infinite resources of the spirit in you. You know that. Think about how that frees you. Whatever relationship you're in, you're free to love them. You're free to be kind to them. You're freed from the power of sin to respond in anger, respond in bitterness, to be conceited, to be arrogant, so that you come alongside others and encourage them. Now you might say, okay, if I've been given the Spirit, so I would live and love like Christ. Why is it so hard to do that? Like, right? Okay, this is what we've been freed to do. I literally have God in me. Nothing beats that. Why is it still hard? Paul says that this fruit of the Spirit, well, he, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit with, the, with garden imagery. It's fruit. And I, I think garden imagery is helpful here. And if you're here right now and you're going, I've been a Christian for a little while, I feel like I'm just not growing at the moment. Just pay special attention to this. Paul uses garden imagery. If you were to go plant strawberries today, or blueberries, or tomatoes, I think I can use tomatoes because nobody knows if it's a fruit or vegetable. Nobody knows. I'm going to get like six texts later. You know it's a, no, no. So I know Robert thinks he knows, 
but you don't know, Robert. Now I'm going to get an essay. It would be ridiculous for you to plant a seed today and tomorrow to go out and pick the fruit, right? That's what we think happens. We think, okay, I believe in Christ. Let's just see the fruit of the Spirit just start growing out of me. Rather, what you would do with a plant is you would, you would care for the plant. You'd pull weeds, look out for insects. You'd water it. You'd make sure it has the proper amount of sun. And Robert would give you 10 more things to do. We would do the things necessary for it to grow and become fruitful. Listen, as Christians, the more we grow in our faith, the more fruitful we become. And so Paul tells us at the end of chapter 5, okay, you have the Spirit of God in you. It's going to bear this fruit. Now, this is how you tend the garden. This is how you grow. This is what you do to be more and more and more fruitful. And so so there's two things he says. Number one, remember that our sinful nature is dead. Look at verse 25. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. You You need to know this. And you need to remind yourself every single day you're no longer a slave to sin. When you believed in Christ, your sinful nature was crucified. It's crucified with Christ. And every day that you live for Christ, it's like you're just pressing in those nails further and further and further. And we know it's technically, it's kind of still alive. Because that's why we have this war. But once someone was crucified, they never came off the cross until they were dead. So your flesh is dead. It's writhing still is trying to cause havoc at times, but it's dead. Every day you need to wake up and to remind yourself, because of Christ, my sinful nature is dead. It has no power over me. I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead in the flesh. Paul uses the Greek tense that teaches a past act that is habitual, which implies the death to sin is slow, but it is certain. Every day, remember, because of what Christ has done, not because of what you have done, but because of Christ's death on the cross, you are no longer a slave to sin. This is what Romans 6, 11 says. Memorize this verse. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're dead to sin. When that anger is boiling up and you feel like it's consuming, you're dead to sin. When you feel like you cannot be patient with your children or your spouse, you're dead to sin. Those are lies that the, that the enemy wants you to believe and putting the yoke back on you saying, nope, this is the only way you can respond. Because they did this, you have to respond with anger or with bitterness or whatever that would be. And yet Christ is saying, no, you're free. You're free from sin. You have the spirit in you that you would now live a life of love like Christ Number two, we're to actively and willingly follow the Spirit. Look at verse 26. If you live by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. The word keep, it means to to keep careful observance. It refers to walking in a straight line. What, what What Paul's saying is that the Christian life is lived with, with an active, conscious effort. We're to grow and keep in step with the Spirit. We're to do what the Spirit 
would lead us to do. And when we come to Scripture, we see that he leads us to gather with the church. So we're going to gather with the church on a regular basis that we would encourage one another so that we would be encouraged by one another. Listen, church, we need the encouragement of one another. It's often your encouragement and your prayers for one another that will build us up and strengthen us that we would live godly lives. Do not take this time that we have in this room for granted. We gather strategically for the purpose of encouragement, for the purpose of praying with one another, for the purpose of building one another up. We never are to come here and say, well, what did I get out of this today? You're coming to give. You're coming to share the love of Christ with others and then be equipped and encouraged with the word. Number two, we partake of communion regularly, which is what we do here after every sermon. We do that to remember what Christ has done for us, that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Number three, we read and we study and we meditate upon God's word. We know that faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of God. The way that we are saved is through God's word. The way that we will grow is through God's word. That's why we prioritize the preaching of the word. That's why we encourage the the studying of God's word in groups throughout the week. Why we encourage you to study on a regular basis by yourself. Number four, we are prayerfully dependent upon God. Listen, every day, at every moment, you pray that you'll be kind to those you work with. You pray you will display the love and the joy of Christ with your family. Let that be your prayer. Wives, when you wake up in the morning, pray, God, fill me with the fruit of the Spirit. I'll be loving to my husband, loving to my my kids today. Husbands, on your way home from work, pray I would be gentle today. I'd be soft and kind and patient with my children. It's as we do these things, we're keeping in step with the Spirit. We're not earning anything. We're just doing what the Spirit is calling us to do, leading us to do through His Word. And as we do that, as we follow Him, remembering that we are dead, walking and keeping a step with the Spirit, our lives will be abundantly fruitful. Listen, you're freed from sin. That's what Paul wants you to know. We have an entirely new life now, and your life is characterized by love. If we were to go back and answer those questions that we began with this morning, how is your faith revealed each day? How does the gospel affect how I work and how I parent, interact with my spouse? How does the gospel affect how I drive? As Paul says, it affects everything. You're freed from sin so you would live in love like Christ. The fruit of the Spirit ought to be naturally growing in your life because you are keeping in step with the Spirit, remembering that your old self is dead every single day. You are free, you are free, you are free in Christ. Know that truth, believe that truth, and live that truth out each and every day. Let's pray and we'll take communion. Father, oh, Father, we praise you. We're free. We're free in Christ, and not because of anything that we have done, but by your grace and your goodness, your infinite, rich, and beautiful, merciful love. You sent your son to die for us, that we would be forgiven, that we'd be cleansed, that we'd be given a new nature, that your spirit would live in us, that we'd be adopted into your family, and we'd go from slave to son. God, I know there are many 
there are Christians in here today that they have forgotten these precious truths. God, may they confess that sin of forgetfulness. May they confess the fact that they have been living functionally as slaves. May they receive your grace and your forgiveness and your kindness and your mercy today. And may they be full of joy as they know they're free. They're free because of your son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. And we are called to now live out that freedom every single day. May they know that your spirit is in them. And may they know they can love their spouse. They can love their children. They can be a faithful witness and wherever they're at in this world, not because of their power and might and effort, but because of your grace in them. God, thank you for setting us free. That we were once free from righteousness, that we are now free to live in righteousness. Oh, Father, we praise you. And I pray, as, especially just as we end today, and, and as we fellowship Lord, may, may our fellowship be sweet. May we tangibly experience, see, taste, feel, and hear the love of Christ in this room through our love for one another this morning. Father, we praise you in your name, Jesus. Amen.